Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, can be found on page 1094 of your pew Bibles. Remember, before we read this text, what has gone before in Jesus cleansing the leper, as we saw his words of cleansing, his touch to make one clean, it's closely connected to this passage. Before we read, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant to us a greater understanding of your word, and that we would come before you and before it with reverence and awe, knowing that this is the word of the Lord. You are really here standing to speak your word. When we hear your word, it is the voice of God in our midst, just as, as active, as alive now as it was when first uttered. Even when Jesus actually did these things, we know that it is standing authoritative and right, and may we receive it as such, the living word that transforms our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 5, beginning in verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Paul, later in God's word, as we get to the epistles, Paul says in Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? As we have been going through the Gospels, we have seen that this this statement, as Paul describes a fallen condition even in himself, as he speaks of this sin and and describes what we are outside of Christ as being wretched, O wretched man that I am, we see the Gospels that are answering that question by displaying the wretchedness of men in many different ways whether it be just their fallen condition on earth, whether it be the maladies that they're afflicted with and paralysis here. But as well, what we see is that this text seeks to answer that that second aspect of what Paul had said when describing his own fallenness, who will deliver me 
from this body of death. You see, in this text, we have a, a clear description of, of sin and, and fallen condition. It's, under, it's understood. It's understood that all men need forgiveness. It's even understood in what Jesus does here to this man. There is sin and there's a problem. There's forgiveness that must be granted. But the center of this text, the most important aspect of it, isn't really interested in, in the wretchedness of man per se, but rather the identity of the one who can deliver from that wretchedness, who he is. And this is what the Gospels have been interested, have been devoted to put before us the one who has that authority. This section of Luke has continued to and will continue to present authority, the authority of Christ. We've seen it in the authority of the words by which he preached, and the people were astonished by that. He's already shown authority over the, the spiritual world and his ability, ability to drive out demons and their fear before him, and that will continue as well. This section has shown authority. We saw it right before this in his authority through his touch to cleanse. And as I already said, that connected to this one for what was more pictured in the healing of the leper by this cleansing touch is now made explicit, is now made clear in what Christ has come to do. And it will be with that proclamation of his authority that he will now begin to have pushback, especially hard and difficult pushback from the religious leaders of the day. By making this claim so explicit, by taking this authority to himself, the leaders begin to array themselves against him. And we see that begin here in earnest in this text. As Jesus begins to answer this story, and who has the right to forgive? Have you ever thought about that? Who has the right to forgive? You're thinking about it, you, you might come up with this answer, what's well, the victim? the party who's wronged. That person has the right to offer forgiveness. And we would all accept that. That is certainly true. The one with whom we seek forgiveness is the one we've wronged. And they are the ones to, to say you're forgiven. I forgive you. It's the victim. But if you think through it a little bit more, is it truly the victim that has that sole right of forgiveness? Or you can think of the fact that even in our legal system, a victim may offer forgiveness, but that doesn't mean the law shall. So what you'd see is the one to offer forgiveness could be a victim, but it is a judge as well who has that legal right, who stands as the administrator of justice, the administrator of a law that stands above everything else, and so judges and rules what is right and places punishment. Well, then it's he, it's the judge who shall forgive. But if you were to think about it a little bit further, you'd realize but that only stands so far as the, he is an administrator of an illegal justice. In fact, what you would see is there's one that must stand behind the judge who's the one who upholds a law by which the judge has to function. One by whom the law was given. One with whom is always the one wronged is who truly is the judge, and that has to be God himself. Who then forgives? Well, it's the victim, it's the judge, it's, it's God. And what you see here is Jesus, who is all three of those things, the victim as well as the substitute who bears our sins, but is the victim sacrificed, the judge who passes that judgment of, of eternal life or death, and God himself, who is the word of God who created the world, 
He has the right to forgive. And this text then places before us something extraordinary. And even more extraordinary when you realize that phrase that's said in the text, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, and it's on this earth. He walks before you in this text. The one who has that sole right, that sole authority to forgive The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. That's what we see in this text. That's the whole point of it. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And if we were to make it a theme statement for us, it would be the Son of Man has authority to forgive our sins. We see him walk before us as we go through this text. We'll see it first in our point, unrequested pardon. Unrequested pardon of those who come before the Lord seeking healing. They sought healing, and at first the man finds forgiveness. It doesn't seem as if that's what he's asking. It seems as if the Lord gets it wrong a bit, where he is dropped before him and he seems to miss the clear evidence that this man is paralyzed, and rather than dealing with that first, he goes to what was unrequested. And yet what is shown to be of more value, of greater need. The scenes laid out before us, what, what, uh, what a story. What's something to have beheld? The crowd is there, and not just the crowd, you see, it's as well the, the Pharisees, the teachers, these are the religious leaders and the elites. They're here now, and they're sitting there. They've come from all over, and this crowd is huge, and Jesus is in this house, and the crowd is pressing against it, so much so that they're spilling out the doors. If this house would have had windows, there would have been people pressed against the windows in that opening, seeking to hear and see what was going on. And into this, this huge mass of humanity comes these men, bearing this paralyzed man, their friend. And they bring him, and they're trying to get him to Jesus, because they have faith to know that, that Jesus has the power to heal, as the text says. The power of the Lord is with Jesus to heal. And these men believed that clearly by the great lengths they go through just to get this man before the feet of Jesus. Houses in that day and age were generally two stories, meaning you had the the single story by which you'd enter from the ground, but the second story was the flat roof. Generally those stairs would have been on the outside of the house and in the open. Families would have kept things up there on that roof. And so these men, not being able to get in the door, nothing will dissuade them. They go up up on top of the house and begin to remove the ceiling tiles, begin to enter into it, breaking through. And again, you can only imagine what this would be as, as the crowd is so pressed in there, as Jesus is in the center of this house, what would have been the reaction as light begins to filter through, as bits of clay and, and whatever was used to support the house begin to fall down into their midst as they open a hole through which to lower this man. And there he is, he's dropped in front of them. And whether this would have created a stir or would have created quiet, we don't know. But Jesus is there and he sees it and the man is dropped before him. And what will he do? What we see here is some unique things that haven't happened yet in the gospel and and is a bit more rare in how it takes place. You'll notice the man doesn't say anything. The text doesn't record it. The man doesn't say, Lord, heal me. Heal me of my paralysis. He, he doesn't ask something. Rather, Jesus speaks first. Now, we can, we can conclude the request would have been quite obvious. You know, Jesus is healing people, and, and placed before him is one who needs that healing. 
But the man doesn't say anything, and it isn't in response to a verbal proclamation of faith in Jesus like we saw with the leper. It's rather Jesus sees the faith of their actions, and notice the text says their actions. It isn't just just the man. He's included in that, but it's this whole group who have gone through this, these great lengths to bring him to Jesus. And Jesus, seeing their faith, decides to act. But now we get that very strange answer to their unphrased request. He says to them, man, says to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. Why did he say that, you would think? Clearly, what this man needed most in our minds would be his healing, his paralysis. But Jesus takes this opportunity to say, no, your sins are forgiven you, making explicit just why he came and what he's doing. You see, by saying it in this way, what Jesus is doing is he's actually getting behind the greater need. The greater need isn't actually that this man received the ability to walk on this earth again. And the greater issue isn't just his paralysis, it's the sin that lies behind it. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean this man was paralyzed because he had sinned? The text doesn't say that. But this man is afflicted with the sin condition. He's afflicted with the curse. He's paralyzed. He's wretched in that sense. But he's wretched in the fact that he needs forgiveness itself. And the faith by which he came to experience that healing of his body is what the Lord brings before him to say, I will forgive your sins. His faith in this, in Jesus, is then well-placed. And yet, there is this shocking pronouncement that Jesus gives, and you see how the religious leaders respond to it, because we don't expect him to say this. When Jesus saw their faith, you would expect them him to have just said, man, rise and walk, but that's not what he says. By switching this order and by saying that he has the authority to forgive sins, he clearly shows what this whole account is about. Authority to forgive. Man, your sins are forgiven. The power to heal spiritual paralysis is what is front and center here. And the claim that Jesus makes that he possesses that power. When Jesus says that his sins are forgiven... It looks like he's answering a request they never made, but the one that they should make, the one that we should all make. Again, it's a teaching opportunity and it's a teaching moment. What lies behind all the problems is rather a spiritual problem. And even to the gathered community, we start to see the depth of what Jesus is doing as they, just like with the leper, would have likely seen this man's condition as a result of his sin. And perhaps this man himself would have been quite mindful of his sins or perhaps believed that a cause of his paralysis was some sort of sin. Perhaps that is true as well, the sin that has afflicted them and those around him, the religious leaders who would say that this man was being punished for sin, most likely. And so Jesus addresses all of that. He heals the, the issue later, but first he deals with the problem of that sin and tells him, man, your sins are forgiven you. He goes back to what lies behind the disease itself. It's not uncommon in God's word for these two to be tied together, a physical abnormality or deficiency or disease or sickness, as well as a spiritual element and dimension of the need for forgiveness of sins. Because the two portray the sin of the world, the brokenness and the curse of it. They come together. 
It's actually interesting, Psalm 103, verses 2 through 3, says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. See how this psalm takes those two and puts them right next to each other. He forgives all your iniquity, he heals all your diseases. This is what the Lord does. This is why Christ has come, and this is what the kingdom of God does. It's come to forgive iniquity and to forgive sins. It comes as well to heal the diseases and brokenness of the world. It's not uncommon in Scripture to promise pardon of sins when the request is for relief of a physical issue. Because Christ is teaching. He's bringing that, that opportunity to say it's not just this that's the problem. It's this as well. This is the more fundamental problem. It's no mistake that he does this in front of the Pharisees. It's no mistake that he chooses this time to utter what they would only take as blasphemy. And Jesus does what the law can't do. The law can't forgive, and the law can't heal. And the teachers of the law who put so much into it, who in effect believed that by obeying their law, they would, they would keep themselves from these issues and they would atone in part for their sins or keep themselves through their works and through obedience to the law in God's good graces and in the covenant community. Rather, Jesus says to this wretched man, your sins are forgiven you, which then leads to a consideration in our, in our second point. Is this blasphemy or truth? Blasphemy or truth. He does the unexpected. The setting is clear. Verse 17 was clear to give it. On one of those days he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Here's the teachers of the law. I mean, these are, these are your, as we maybe update the language, these are the seminary professors. These are the theologians and the scholars. These are the pastors. They're there. It's, it's almost like you're, it's almost like Jesus does this at a church assembly meeting. They're gathered there. They're there evaluating him and he takes this opportunity to say something that they won't like also shows you that Jesus was not concerned with their judgment or what they thought of him. He was concerned with the truth. And so he says it right in their faces, right before them, that they won't miss. Takes a divine authority to himself. Because they're right. Only God can forgive sins. They know that. But you see, there is an error in their thinking. This is the first time in Luke's Gospel where now we encounter the scribes and Pharisees. And this begins, as I already said, their opposition to him. From here to even just chapter 6, verse 11, in each story that will come, there's a conflict with them and this, this group. And in response to what he, he does, we see what they do. They will call him a blasphemer here. As his fame continues to spread, they critique those he calls as, as disciples. They critique his practice as he doesn't fast and says instead eats and drinks. They critique him for his And it begins here with this. And because of this audience, Jesus takes the moment to say this, and they evaluate him. He says that this man's sins are forgiven, and then he perceives what these people are saying in their hearts. And notice they don't utter it. Notice these teachers and, and of the law, these Pharisees, don't rise up and exclaim, Blasphemer, you've, you've just taken God's honor for yourself. You should be stoned. They don't say that. It's in their hearts. They're saying these things. They're thinking these things. And Jesus knows it. 
And he asks and tells them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Now this is interesting. Truly speaking, it is more difficult to say your sins are forgiven, or at least to say that in truth. That means you have the, the, the divine authority of God. It means you are God to say for that your sins are forgiven you and that I have that authority. That makes you one with God. Not only given the divine right by the Father, as was given to the Son, but he is God himself to say it. It takes that identity to say your sins are forgiven. So that is truly more difficult to say on a theological element, if you consider it that way. But we see what he's doing here. They're thinking he's a blasphemer. They're thinking he's a man who's a, a liar, or, or even, as later, possessed by some evil spirit. And that's why he has this power. Well, he tells them, what, which is easier for me to do right now? And we see the point. I could stand here as me, as just a man, and I could proclaim falsely, your sins are forgiven you, I have that authority. I can utter those words. It's easy. Any of us can say it. It's easy to do. Clearly, and that's Jesus' point. Which is easier for me to just claim this authority or to show it and heal a man that can't be healed and do it with the power of word? Which is easier? So you see by this what the point is. The whole point of this is the identity and authority of the one who forgives sins. Because Jesus is using this healing, and now you see why he did it the way he did. He didn't just heal the man first. He proclaimed forgiveness of sins so that in his healing miracle, in that display of supernatural power and ability, he would prove he does have the authority to forgive sins. It bears witness to it, which is easier for me to say. And he tells the man, rise, walk, take up your, well, take what you're relying on, and go home. And the man does. It's astonishing. The issue of the Pharisees, here's their problem with their reasoning. They thought they were quite sound scripturally and biblically. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. Man does not have that authority. This man's claiming authority to forgive sins, thus making him a blasphemer, making him incorrect and wrong. But here's the problem. That line of thought will work 99% of the time. But they're waiting for the Messiah, aren't they? They're waiting for the one in the Old Testament who was the God-man to come dwell with them. God would, Emmanuel, God with us, would come. That's who they're waiting for. And they take an approach that would effectively eliminate any opportunity they would ever have to notice and identify the Messiah when he came. You see, their reasoning should not have been that, that logical deduction, only God can forgive, he is a man, he doesn't have that power, he's a blasphemer. It should have rather been a claim, an evaluation of that claim to see, is this the Messiah? Because that's who they were waiting for. At least who they should have been waiting for, but they don't take that approach. And by necessity, their very beliefs will eliminate the Messiah. They won't recognize him when he comes, but he's here now and he's claimed that authority and now he's doing what only God can do through the power of God to raise and to heal, to do these supernatural acts. And by this miracle, 
being a verification of who he claims to be and his identity. And then notice the bit of irony here. Jesus perceives what they're thinking. They don't verbalize that doubt. They're thinking he's a blasphemer, but he knows what they're thinking. So the very thoughts of their doubt, the very thoughts saying he's not who he's claiming to be, he's a blasphemer, he actually knows and provides further proof of the fact that he is the one to come, that he does have the power to forgive sins. He knows what's in their mind. He knows even the sinful thoughts in their heads at that very moment and responds to it. Very thoughts saying he isn't who he claims to be proves by how Jesus knows it that he is who he claims to be. He has the power to forgive sins. And so he doesn't speak blasphemy, he speaks truth. But then that moves to our third point the Son of Man's authority. The Son of Man's authority. This passage introduces what will take place in these narratives. And here Jesus says that he is the Son of Man and that this Son of Man has the power to forgive. This is the first time in Luke the title Son of Man is used. And what does that mean? What is Jesus saying there? That title is on its face reading, face value, a description of a man, of a human. The Son of Man. That's what it's saying. But it's not simply meaning that this person is a human because it's used in the Old Testament of that messianic figure. Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verse 13 and following, we see Daniel's visions and his night visions. And we read this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus takes that title from that text. He's the Son of Man. He's the one that comes to the Ancient of Days. He's the one who's given an eternal kingdom and dominion and power. He's the one who reigns, and he's revealing here, I am the Son of Man who comes, and I have the authority to forgive sins on earth. Right before them, here's the identity, and we think then of Paul's statement, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? from this body of death, the Son of Man. He's here. He has that authority. He has that right, the only right to forgive sins. And this activity from Jesus causes quite a stir. Verse 26, an amazement sees them all. And they glorify God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. You can imagine that. And you can sort of peel back what that's saying. What's behind this amazement? What, what, what's going on in their amazement? Well, it's an amazement first of what this miracle was. They saw a miracle performed. But it's even more so tied to the, the questions that would arise. Does this man truly have the authority to forgive sins? And what does that mean? Is he divine? Is he the Messiah? Is he really the Son of Man? Here's the amazement because that miracle in what Jesus is performing, the authority of his word that he's preaching, bear witness to who he is. That's why the crowd isn't so quick to just pass him off as a crazy man. 
It would be quite easy to a man who can't support his claim to say, you're a blasphemer. You're taking authority that isn't yours, but he's backing it up. The miracles and supernatural activity bear witness. The authority of his word bears witness to who he is. And so it would even cause that questions to the crowd themselves. Who really is he? By making that claim explicit and clear, I have the authority to forgive sins. He's forcing a question and an answer. It's, it, you can't ignore this. The Pharisees can't ignore this. It's an either-or. He's either speaking truth or blasphemy. Which is it and who is he? That's the question that is forced from it. Yet you see that those, the men who came and placed faith in him, have walked away with their friend healed. Bit of a foretaste as to who he truly is. Those who side with him, those who place their faith in him, find healing and forgiveness. As his word says. Why is this written? Why is this in the gospel? It's to force that same question here. It's to give us as well an assurance. These things are written that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. These things are written that we might have assurance of the things we've been taught, that the Son of Man came, and that he has authority to forgive sins. He makes that clear, and we need that clarity. We need to know that when we go to the Son of Man and when we take his mantle upon us through faith, our sins are forgiven. He has the authority to do so. As we began, he's the victim, the judge, he's God. He possesses all right and authority to forgive sins, and he does. And just like with the leper, as we saw there, how, how these are so closely connected, both of these miracles, that power to cleanse and to heal and to say you're, you're no longer unclean, even spiritually, is placed all right there in his authority to say, I forgive your sins. And in response to the wretched men that we are who delivers us, it's Jesus Christ who delivers us from sin. In accomplishing the most important task, he forgives the soul. Why then do you withhold a request for forgiveness if you've not believed? That's what the answer, that's the question. That's what's forced by the text. If you haven't believed, you have to ask the question, why not? And the only conclusion you're left with is either I believe he has the authority to forgive my sin or not, and I don't care about my sin, or I don't trust that he's the one. That's the only conclusion, and what stands then is eternal life or eternal death. Forces that, that question, and for any here who have not yet asked that question, you can't walk away from this text without asking yourself that question. But also for those who have placed our, our security in him, who asked for forgiveness, why do we hold on to sin if we are believers? How can we hold on to guilt when he has that authority? When he can tell the man, your sins are forgiven, and, and even show it by, in, in proof by his walking up. You, you know what's interesting about that paralytic? Could he ever disassociate the two? He couldn't. His, his ability to move and walk would always be tied with a forgiveness. He'd always know that before he had been made whole, he had been forgiven. 
Before his body had been healed, he had been spiritually pardoned. That's what we have in Christ. All the fullness, all the authority to forgive, to cleanse, to heal, to make new, to bring the kingdom of God in its fullness comes through his authority. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, and he's our Son of Man. He's our King who comes to the Ancient of Days, and he walked on this earth. Only one man ever did who could walk around and actually forgive sins. And he's with us. And he's united to us. As we leave this service, as we walk away from here, we always need to keep in mind that we go to this one. That we very similarly go before Christ and are laid before him, and he pardons us through faith. We only know his forgiveness, the authority of the Son of Man to forgive our sins. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Christ alone. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you to see the one you have sent, your own dear Son. And Lord Jesus, we see what you have done as the one who is the forgiver of sins, the Son of Man who possesses that authority and who forgives our sins, who bore our sins on the cross, and who is the only one able to cleanse Yours, the blood that cleanses us. Yours is the authority that forgives us our sins. We see that power displayed. And in the question that arises from this text, that the text forces, we pray that we would not turn away and, and describe you as a blasphemer. Our response wouldn't be what the Pharisees' response was, but would rather see the truth of it. You did what was the more difficult in its setting. You healed and brought new life to the, to the paralysis, to the bones, and to the body that had been broken, all in service of the truth that you forgive our sins. We praise you for that great truth, and may we know it. May we believe it. In Jesus' name.